Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast for the seven days starting February 22nd. This week on the podcast, I'll talk to Scientific American senior writer Wade Gibbs about computer security. Physicist Mark Shigelsky gives us the cold, hard facts about one of the cooler events at the Winter Olympics. And frequent Siam contributor J.R. Minkle reports on what he found at the largest general science conference of the year. Plus, we'll test your knowledge of some recent science in the news. First up, Scientific American senior writer Wade Gibbs just got back from San Jose, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley, where he attended one of the biggest computer security meetings of the year, called the RSA Conference 2006. To get the lowdown on high-tech security, I called Wade at his home in Pittsburgh. Hi, Wade. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. And uh, you just got back from this conference. Tell us about it. What were some of the highlights? The this disturbing trend that many, many experts at this conference pointed out is that what used to be a kind of gentleman's game of the hackers looking for recognition or fame or infamy has turned into serious crime. And that, in fact, of the malware or malformed software that's seen these days, something like 99% of it is thought to be crimeware. Most of these are viruses and so-called Trojan horse programs that aim at co-opting a computer system and adding it to what they call a botnet. That is, they make a sort of a robot system out of it that can be remote controlled by some malfeasance. And what's, what's the bottom line on this? How much money is, is being stolen this way? Losses due to security breaches are now estimated at nearly $70 billion a year. That's almost $200 million a day. These estimates, of course, are very tricky to, to make because many, many computer crimes are not reported to the authorities. So this may be actually a, a very gross underestimate of the amount of computer crime going on. But uh, the more alarming thing is the trend. The amount of dollar loss due to computer crime seems to be growing at nearly three times the rate of investment in software and services to prevent c- computer crime. So the bad guys are really outrunning the good guys. What are, what are the actual kinds of crimes that we're talking about? A big one these days is extortion. I mentioned botnets earlier where systems are taken over by hostile software and then they are used as launching pads for spam, for so-called denial of service attacks where they prevent some website from operating. They take down a company's network. So this is like an old-fashioned protection racket where they don't actually do any damage unless you don't pay up. Yes, and from the mafia's perspective, it's much superior to the old-fashioned racket because it can be executed worldwide and because it doesn't require actual violence to enforce those who don't comply with your extortion request. Therefore, the punishments, if you should be caught in it, are much less. You don't have to break anybody's legs. You just press a few key strokes and take down a whole industry. In many countries, it's possible to operate these extortion rings with almost complete anonymity and almost complete protection from criminal prosecution by the law. Amazing. These botnets are huge. There was an arrest last month of three so-called bot herders who maintained one of these botnets, and they had more than 1.5 million machines under their control, unbeknownst largely to the owners. Of these machines, all around they the world. operated an extortion ring for months, and they would just approach companies, tell them, "You will pay us X amount of dollars, or we will destroy your computer network." And the, the alarming thing is that they operated for months overseas with no one reporting them to the authorities. When they struck a U.S. firm, 
That wow. company did report them to the FBI, and within hours, the FBI had taken them down. All right, so that's the good news in this case, at any rate, that if the authorities are notified, they apparently can do something about it relatively quickly. Yes and no. The other, in the case of extortion, they often can trace it to its source. Whether they can actually get an arrest and an extradition is another matter. It depends greatly on where the attack took place and what the laws are in that country. A lot of the criminals uh, seem to be behind these attacks are part of the Russian mafia. And they operate in countries where it's very difficult to get the authorities to actually arrest the perpetrators and to recover any monies that have been taken. Another major source of crime on the Internet are phishing attacks. These are fake websites that are set up to look like banking sites or pharmaceutical sites or uh, other places where people might enter sensitive information. And they trick people via spam or these days even via messages to cell phones to go to these fake websites, enter their secure information, and then, lo and behold, all the money is transferred out of the accounts or the, the secure information is used to, to commit crimes. Incredible. It's absolutely frightening. And uh... I'll tell you what frightens me. Phishing, people are starting to, to become aware that they should never click on a link in an email to go to a website where they would be entering password information. People are starting to learn to avoid these. Mm -hmm. But there's a much more insidious form of attack now taking place called farming. Again, like phishing, this is spelled with a PH at the beginning. The idea behind farming is you actually poison the, the trust-based system of, of translation from network addresses such as wellsfargo.com to IP addresses such as 192.168.yada yada By poisoning these servers and creating directories that are false, they can actually redirect legitimate traffic from the bank site, say, to some site set up by, say, the Russian mafia. How, how are we going to defend against all this? This is, at root, a social problem. As, as Kim Cameron, the chief architect for identity at Microsoft, put it, we need to think of humans as devices. And these devices are fundamentally poor cryptographic devices as shipped. <laughs> so humans are, are definitely the weak link in, in any security system because they can be corrupted, they can be tricked, they can make mistakes. We can't get humans out of the system because the system serves humans. So what's the solution? More education is part of it. Part of it is just changing the level of trust that we use when we operate computer systems. Right. Just be more careful in your personal use of computers. Yeah. It, it seems clear that we need to raise people's level of suspicion. And the computer companies and the operating system companies, too, can do a lot to provide more clues that we can use and that we need to determine how suspicious we should be of anything we see on our screen. Yeah, we're the weak link in the whole cyber world, apparently. There's one other point I, I want to mention. It's not just that computer security experts are seeing a dramatic increase in the number of online attacks, although that is impressive. One Boeing representative at the conference said that since 2002, she had seen an 11,000% increase in malware blocked at their corporate gateway. But more alarming is the increasing number of directed attacks. These are, instead of an a virus or a Trojan that just sent onto the Internet to go wherever it will go and sort of find its own way. These are attacks that are directed at a specific person, at a specific company, sometimes at a specific machine. And Boeing reported attacks like of this kind that were attempts coming from China to steal specific engineering data on their networks. So, so they identify uh, 
an individual who may be working on something at a particular company and can target that individual's computer. That's right. And these attacks are much harder to defend against because they do not spread widely. They generally do not get picked up by the detection network that feeds the antivirus, anti-spyware programs. So their signatures are never entered into the database that is used to screen incoming software and incoming connections for possible malware. So they tend to fly, as it were, under the radar of the security software we have installed today. That's uh, scary stuff, Wade, but thanks. You're welcome. For more on what Wade found out at the RSA Conference 2006, check out the Scientific American blog at blog.siam.com. That's blog.siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Three are true. See if you can deduce, induce, intuit, reason, just plain guess which one is totally bogus. Story one. Obesity may be contagious. No, not because your brother passes the french fries, because he passes on a virus that increases fat deposits. Story two. A study found that people who were better at tongue twisters, you know, like a box of biscuits, a box of mixed biscuits, and a biscuit mixer, had much higher rates of gum disease than average. Story 3. While defending warrantless wiretaps, U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez claimed that George Washington engaged in electronic surveillance. And Story 4. The kind of earwax you have may be related to how you smell. We'll be back with the answer, but first, it's been called chess on ice, not hockey, that's foosball on ice, and most Americans only get a glimpse of this chess on ice every four years during the Olympics. We're talking about curling, the sport that looks like frozen shuffleboard. One member of the team slides this 44-pound granite rock down the ice, while two teammates with brooms feverishly sweep the ice in front of the sliding rock. The goal is to get your team's big heavy rocks closer to the bullseye than the other team's big heavy rocks. Anyway, I was wondering what all the sweeping was about and found a real scientist who studies curling. He's Mark Shigelsky, a physicist at the University of Northern British Columbia, who usually researches odd quantum mechanical phenomena like quantum tunneling. But he used to do some curling and sometimes publishes on the physics of curling with fellow UNBC physicist Eric Jensen. I called Shigelsky at his office in Prince George, British Columbia. Professor Shigelsky, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for um, contacting me. The reason I got in touch was I was watching curling during the Olympics and and you see these people furiously sweeping the ice in front of this big, heavy granite rock as it's going down the ice. And what what are those sweepers actually accomplishing from a physics point of view? Well, there's several things. The most important one is that by sweeping in front of the ice, you are reducing the friction between the rock and the ice. With the reduced friction, the rock still slows down, but it's it doesn't slow down as quickly. You know, if you turn over a curling rock and look at it, you'll see that it is not the case that there's a, a circle in contact with the rock. It's a, it's, a, it's a thin ring. The ice itself is also not flat. It's pebbled. It has little hills and valleys so that the actual area of contact is quite small, and therefore there's a large pressure of the rock on the ice. In, in sweeping in front of the ice, you're, you're bringing the temperature of the ice up, and that reduces the friction. But you uh, you are also 
uh, creating a thin film of a, a quasi-liquid type of material. This is something that is not uh, fully agreed upon by everybody, but you know, the work that we've done strongly supports the idea that the key thing going on is the friction that is due to this thin liquid film. How many how many scholarly papers on curling have you published? Uh, <laughs> more than I'd like to admit. Uh, <laughs> I don't actually remember how many I've published, but the one that's the most important, in my opinion, is the most recent paper that Dr. Eric Jensen and I collaborated on and published in the Canadian Journal of Physics in November of 2004. And that's the Motion of Curling Rocks Experimental Investigation and Semi-Phenomenological Description. Exactly. So one of the big deals is that the the rock, if I understand this correctly, the rock doesn't move in the direction that you would expect it to move. It's breaking in a way that you would expect not to happen based on the direction that the rock is spinning. Correct. So if it's spinning, let's say the rock is spinning clockwise, you would expect it on dry ground. You, if you, if you had something spinning clockwise on dry ground, it would break to the left. Yeah. If you take a drinking glass and you turn a drinking glass over and rotate it clockwise and push it so it's sliding away from you, this glass will curl to the left as it goes away from you. And that's exactly the opposite to what the curling rock does. Okay, so what's going on? Do we know? We we investigated that rather thoroughly, and and one of the main things about this was that there would be uh, more melting of, of the thin liquid film at, at the front than at the back. And this thin, this thin film is very, 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 very thin, so you, you can't observe it directly. But having more melting at the front of the rock than at the back makes the friction at the front of the curling rock less than it is at the back. And so you can understand this by looking at the drinking glass and the curling rock. Let's take them both to be rotating clockwise. And let's look first at the drinking glass as it slides on a, on a countertop. The front of the drinking glass has a sideways motion to the right. Okay. And therefore the friction at the front will be to the left. Right. I now, mean, I mean, correct, the, to the left. Yes. Gotcha. The motion's <laughs> to the right as it's turning clockwise, so the friction that it's, that it's uh, encountering is going to the left. Correct. The drinking glass has a tendency to tip forward. It doesn't actually lift off. The back doesn't actually lift off unless the friction is very high, but, but it has a tendency to push harder. It, it does push harder on the tabletop at the front than the back, and therefore, the tabletop pushes harder back on the drinking glass at the front as compared to the back. Uh-huh. And that means that the friction at the front is greater, has a, has, is a stronger force than the friction at the back. So that component is pushing it to the left as it moves forward. That's right. At the front of the drinking glass, the sideways motion is to the right, the friction is to the left, and it's greater than what goes on at the back at the back clockwise rotation, the, sli- the sideways motion to the left, and the friction is to the right. So the friction at the back is to the right, friction at the front is to the left, but the friction at the front is stronger than it is at the back. And Got that's it. why the curling, the, cur- the, the rotating drinking glass curls to the left. Right, but in your rock situation on the ice, because of what you just explained about the 
the thin film up front, you have the opposite frictional situation. Exactly. The rolls are reversed. The friction at the front of the curling rock is less than it is at the back. And so, therefore, the sideways component of the friction force at the back is to the right, and therefore the curling rock curls to the right. Very interesting. Dr. Shigelsky, thank you very much. Thank you. If you're looking for more info or images that help to make this stuff clear, they're out there on the web. Now, the URLs for those websites are pretty ugly, so just Google the professor's name, Shigelsky, and you'll find them. That's Shigelsky, S-H-E-G-E-L-S-K-I. Now it's time to find out which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories, three of which are real. Story one, a virus may contribute to obesity. Story two, people good at tongue twisters get more gum disease. Story three, the Attorney General said that George Washington engaged in electronic surveillance. And story four, your earwax type and your body odor may be linked. I'll give you a second to think about those. Time's up. The link between viruses and obesity is true. In animal studies, a couple of adenoviruses have been implicated in increasing fat levels. You should still eat right, get exercise, and wash your hands to try to keep from being infected. The story about the Attorney General and George Washington? Well, here's what he said. President Washington, President Lincoln, President Wilson, President Roosevelt have all uh, authorized electronic surveillance. Now, he, he didn't explain how George Washington did electronic surveillance, but I have it on good authority that it involved trained eels. Trained eels. The one about earwax and body odor is true. There are basically two kinds of earwax known as wet and dry, and researchers studying earwax genetics say that people with the wet kind generally have more unpleasant armpit odor than people with the dry kind. There's a correlation there. Which means that the story about tongue twisters and gum disease is totally bogus. Nevertheless, Theophilus Thistle was a successful thistle sifter. Next up, frequent Scientific American Magazine contributor J.R. Minkle. He just returned from the biggest general science conference of the year, the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, usually just called the AAAS. To find out what J.R. found out, I called him at his home in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, J.R., how are you? I'm pretty good. Hi, Steve. So you just got back from the AAAS conference in St. Louis. What, in your opinion, were some of the more interesting stories that you ran into there? Yeah, there were a few stories that I liked. Uh, One of the topics being addressed was the changing nature of mathematical proof. Um, Keith Devlin from Stanford University, who's written a lot of popular books on mathematics, spoke about that. Um, So the the idea there is that in the past, say, 50 years, there have been a few major examples of mathematical proofs that are so, you know, horribly long and complicated, possibly needing a computer uh, to run that mathematicians can't actually say with certainty that the proof is proved. The four-color theorem was originally um, checked by, it involved checking through a a number of of different cases by computer, and uh, at the time it came out, it was um, somewhat controversial whether that actually constituted a proof, because you had to, you know, accept that the computer was doing this, that no you know, a single mathematician or maybe even group of them could could check all the lines of code, all these cases. 
the computer with checking. And the four-color theorem is the one about that you only need four colors to do any kind of map? Right. No two countries with the same color would be next to each other with only four colors being enough. Right. And so um, there were a couple other examples. The um, Kepler conjecture, which has to do with what's the most, the least wasteful way to pack spheres. You know, uh, the, the intuition is that just the way that a grocer would do it by, you know, the way a grocer would arrange oranges or grapefruit is the, the best way to do it, the way that makes the most use of the space. Um, but actually proving that was uh, terribly complicated and required this um, long uh, computer-aided proof uh, that came out a few years ago, and it was submitted to, I think, the Annals of Mathematics. And the reviewers came back and said, well, we, you know, we're 99% sure that this is true, but uh, we can't check every line of the computer code. So, so you know, that's the best we can do. And the the paper was, um, I believe, published with a little note saying something to that effect. And the packing problem is really of interest to manufacturing, for example, because they they would love to know if there's a a way to get more spherical objects in the same size box. Yeah, you know, if you could fit more golf balls into a, a box, that, you know, titleists would, would love to know. How do we know that something is is absolutely proven in a mathematical sense? What, what do we really know about the nature of mathematical proof? So what it means is basically that we have to take mathematicians' words for it, a word for it. We have to take um, the word of the people who know the problem best. So Devlin's point is that basically that there there might be a few sort of high-profile examples of cases in which we you know, cannot say with ironclad certainty that this is true, but that that just makes mathematics you know, sort of like more like other sciences. Um, so the old proverb about trust but verify in, in mathematics has become just trust. Well, in, in some cases, yes. What else do you have from the meeting? There was, um, you know, a cute symposium on how insects fly. Um, I think the highlight from that was a neuroscientist at Caltech who, um, so he pointed out that at this point we, you know, mathematicians have given us a, a rough but good understanding of the basic forces that a wing creates when it's flapping. And the question now is how to, how to, um, use that knowledge to, uh, to figure out how a fly, for example, um, you know, flies around, finds things, navigates an environment um, based on you know, the, the fundal, fundamental way that its wings work. How does it control the wings? Um, and so he is trying to reverse engineer the fruit fly, as he says. Um, and uh, he started out with uh, putting sensors on insect wings and has now moved to what he calls the guffum, the Grand Unified Fly Model, which is a simulation of a flapping, um, navigating fly. What's and the researcher's name? Uh, his name is Michael Dickinson. And uh, what what does he hope to accomplish by getting a better understanding of insect flight? I mean, there's one sort of obvious application, which is, uh, you know, the government would like to have really small robots that can fly around and, and uh, spy on, you know, whoever. Um, so there's an application to to you know, little flying vehicles, um, but it's also just sort of an interesting problem. Anything else that uh, turned up interesting at the conference? Yeah, there was another cool one. Um, human evolution is always sort of 
popular at these meetings, and um, there was a, another acute talk about um, the possibility that um, eating more fish and shellfish fueled the growth of our brains. Um, yeah, fish provide a sort of high-quality, long-chain, polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are very useful in the developing brain. Um, These are the omega-3s that you always hear about? Yeah. And uh, so the idea is that, that and, um, after some climatic changes, the environment became wetter and uh, we had more access and were driven to eating more fish and that the you know, having more of those um, omega-3s, presumably, um, you know, either drove or either drove the growth of our brains or gave us the fuel uh, with which to, to have bigger brains. So fish really is brain food. Apparently. Interesting stuff. Thanks very much, JR. Sure. Thanks, Steve. For more info on the AAAS meeting, go to www.aaas.org. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. Remember, Siam in this case has nothing to do with Thailand. Siam is short for Scientific American. So the email address is podcast at sciam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com, www.siam.com. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.